Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast. This podcast is focused on specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Today's interview is with John Tillman, the CEO of the Illinois Policy Institute, a public policy nonprofit. John is one of the nation's most prominent leaders in the state-based think tank world. Over the last 12 years, John has grown Illinois policy from just $80,000 in annual revenue to more than $12 million and now has a staff of more than 46. Before joining the public policy world, John was and continues to be a businessman and entrepreneur. Real quick before we get started, our team has a training coming up that you may be interested in. I'll share more details in a little bit, but for now, onto the show. Welcome to the podcast, John. Great to be with you, Trevor. Thanks for having me on. Just to get right into it, you have a really interesting path to becoming a nonprofit CEO. Out of college, you managed and grew a call center business and then opened several sports store franchises. How do these experiences shape how you approach fundraising and running a nonprofit? Well, it actually started even before that. Uh, I always joke that I'm the only nine-year-old in 1968 who watched both political conventions, pretty much gavel to gavel, and thought it was interesting. So I had an early interest in the game of politics, but I wasn't obviously very, uh, it was very uh, a competitive sort of sports mentality as, as a kid. And when I went to college, I started out as a political science minor and a journalism major, and I had an interest in trying to influence and shape the debates, uh, not only among my friends socially during that time, but also uh, in public policy, even though, again, I was very raw at that stage. And then I went on with life. Uh, as you mentioned, I spent 11 years in the call center business, and then eventually another 11 or 12 years uh, in the retail sporting goods business. But the call center business was really a life-altering experience. The vast majority of the people that came to work, most of the salespeople worked part-time. The management team was full-time, and that was, these were career jobs for the managers. But the part-time workers were all people that were struggling in their life. Uh, they, no one takes a job, Trevor, in a call center because that sounds like a really great place to work. They take a job in a call center, especially a part-time job, to supplement their full-time income because they're in financial crisis in some form or fashion. They either overspent. They ran up their credit card. They live in a terrible neighborhood in the city of Chicago, for example, and want to get their kids into a better school, either a private school in the city or a suburban school where it's more expensive to live. And so I got to watch the human condition unfold for me in those 11 years in the call center business. And that made me realize just how much public policy affects people's daily lives and the choices people make. So later on in 2004, when I was selling off part of my retail business, I decided I wanted to get involved in what I thought was the greatest force for good ever created in the human sphere to improve the human condition, and that is free enterprise combined with the founding principles of the country. So I started poking around in the public policy arena until I finally uh, made a headway and, and broke in. That's great. So take me back to 2007 when you were considering the job of leading Illinois policy. What did you think it was going to be like before you started? And then what was it really like? What's interesting about that is it wasn't really a job. I had worked for three years with some guys uh, doing national work in the public policy and advocacy arena from 2004 through 2007. And we parted company and I had to decide, did I want to get back into starting another business or did I want to try to continue uh, to advance the cause of freedom through public policy? And my original idea was I was going to start a marketing agency as a nonprofit. I actually filed the, filed the C3 papers for the Marketing Freedom Foundation. 
And then I realized after some conversations with people that that's kind of crazy. I've never really been a full-time, I mean, I, I was full-time doing this for three years, but I've never run my own show. So maybe what I ought to do is try to prove the concepts I had about taking a marketing-centric approach to advancing human freedom in the public policy arena. Maybe I should actually try to be a practitioner myself. So I wrote a business plan because I'm an entrepreneur to build out a variety of entities, including the Illinois Policy Institute as a think tank, a litigation center, uh, some data capabilities, some uh, uh, advocacy capability. And then the Illinois Policy Institute had existed for five years prior to that. This was in July or the early spring of 2007. So I approached the uh, original founder and said, would you like to be part of this larger plan? And he very enthusiastically said yes, and he was a great guy and a, and a good founder, but it was struggling to raise money. And I said, okay, great, I'll join the board. So I joined the board, and then after a while, trying to raise money for him is with him in the driver's seat, it just didn't work. And so my original idea was I was going to be the you know the grandmaster overseeing all these entities, and I came to realize very quickly, and this is an entrepreneurial lesson, is you know if you really want to get something off the ground, you have got to go in and take the range yourself and ride that horse to the finish line. So. Uh, actually, today is the 12-year anniversary, July 2nd uh, of 2007. I assumed the title then of CEO. I basically said to the board, if you want me to keep being involved, you're going to have to make me CEO because I'm going to have to have an operational role. And they graciously did that. And so then I went out and started raising money with me in the driver's seat, and that changed everything. And we started raising money very quickly for the vision that I laid out. Well, happy anniversary to start with. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So how did you approach fundraising? So this is your first organization you've run, you tried fundraising on as the chairman of the board, now a CEO. Talk to me about how you approached fundraising early on. Uh, I had a very simple formula that I developed early on. And of course, I'd spent, you know, uh, uh, by this time, over 20 years, essentially selling in some form or fashion, but I'd never done nonprofit fundraising. So it was brand new to me. My philosophy was very simple. I call it the virtuous circle of impact. And you'd have a conversation with a donor, and the conversation with some, obviously, specificity would go like this. Here's what we're going to do. Here's why it matters. Please give us money. And then after we would get the money, we would go back to the donor and say, here's what we said we were going to do. Here's what we've done. Here's why it mattered, or here's where it went wrong and what we learned. Please give us more money. And that, in a nutshell, summarizes my entire fundraising philosophy. So it's a simple formula. Now, it is much more artful and difficult to execute. And so in the execution, one of the things I always talk about is that donors don't invest in activities. They don't invest in your effort. They don't invest in your lovely personality. Donors invest in the mission you're selling. uh, I should say the vision you're selling, the mission you're selling to make that vision come to reality. And then then they invest in the strategy you lay out to make it all come uh, come to fruition. And if you're a credible presenter, you have a track record of success, you have some demonstrable success in your past life or your current life, a number of donors, if they buy into your vision and mission and believe in your strategy, will give you money. That's the, that's the formula in a nutshell. Wow, that's really fascinating, especially the whole people think, I think a lot of times that it's all about going in with a big project that you're going to lay out, like these are the specific things we're going to do and get them to buy into the specifics of a project where you're saying getting them to buy into the overarching vision and then going back and updating them on what's been accomplished is the... That is a, yeah, that is the most important part of this whole uh, subject is that, and this is the greatest mistake most nonprofit fundraisers make is they become what a friend of mine once called the project guy. 
don't ever become the project guy. The only reason to ever talk about your projects and your programmatic activity is to illustrate your strategy coming to life. And through that, to illustrate how you're making your mission, how you're achieving your mission, and how that mission is driving you towards your vision. So it's a waterfall effect, both up and down. So you have a vision that then drives what your mission must be. What is the you know, what is the actual work you're going to do to make that vision come true? How are you going to focus your energies? That is what the mission statement is about. What I call grand strategy is the overarching strategic objectives that will make that mission be achieved. And then from there, you set goals and objectives as you would in any kind of strategic planning thereafter. And and then those goals and objectives determine what kind of programmatic activity you're going to do. But the the donors only care about all of that as it illustrates your grand strategy, your mission, and your vision, and you waterfall back up or climb the ladder back up. And do you notice a difference between like that's the response you get from like a major donor who's writing six and seven figure checks with that approach versus smaller donors who might be writing a hundred dollar check? Do you notice there's a different response? There is a different response actually, and and even though I would say that hundred dollar to say five thousand dollar donors. Many of them also think from a visionary point of view, but I would say that there's a, if you were to do a pie chart, it's very different. So your $100,000 donors and up, you know, 90% of them are going to be in the category of giving that I just described. They're very focused on your grand vision. Are you doing big things? What is your strategy to make it happen? What are some, what are some of the programmatic examples that demonstrate that you're successful in making that mission come true? Again, that's the only reason I care about that. As you move down into the donor, the lower uh, dollar donor levels, uh, many of them give for different reasons. So some of them are still visionary, and, and of course that is a wonderful thing. And many of the ones who are visionary, if they have an increasing capacity, those are obviously your prime targets to move them up and get greater buy-in to what your vision and mission are. But then the hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, five hundred dollar donors, a lot, they, many of them again buy into the mission. But you, as an individual fundraiser, of course, can't spend the time to lay this all out because the transaction time costs too much. So you've got to figure out a way to have operational systems that are automated that let them know how they're buying into, by giving that kind of money, how they're buying into the vision and mission. And many of them buy in not just because of that, but because of a sense of belonging. And that's what I think is more interesting is it's about joining a team. It's like being a sports fan. Those $100 to $500 donors, I think, start out more kind of sports fandom mentality than they do vision and mission mentality. Again, I'm generalizing. That's not true of everybody, of course. Right. But I think we've all had that experience where you you know, give $100 or even $10 to whether it's a campaign or a cause, and all of a sudden, you're a lot more interested in it. You follow the headlines about it. You are just more bought in. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's why I call it the sports team mentality. It creates loyalty. Right. It's like the first time you take a friend to a ball game. They've never really been much of a baseball fan. And all of a sudden, oh, this is more interesting and fun than I thought or whatever sport am I. Right, exactly. So how do you balance that where like the sports team mentality for the smaller donors with the big vision mentality for your large donors? So you're keeping the same message. Well, I think uh, the, the, the great marketing is always making sure that you have brand harmony up across your market segments. So if you think about, let's just take BMW as an automobile brand. When you think about the three series, the five series, their six series, uh, their SUVs, of course, the seven series, there is brand harmony up and down that uh, automobile lineup. Each of the different models has something different to offer, and each of the different models goes after a di- different segment of the luxury car market, but there's brand harmony. So when you're thinking about how you message with your donors, whether they're a $100 donor, a $500 donor, or 50000 or, or $5 million, 
uh, you want to make sure that you have brand harmony. And that's why when I start a new organization, we always spend a lot of time on defining the vision and mission. Uh, what is the grand strategy? Uh, what are the values and principles that govern us and keep us reined in? What are the goals? What are the objectives, et cetera? We spend a lot of time. I call that the circle of success. There's 12 steps to it. I just named the first few. And then the beginning of starting something new, a new initiative, it is very important to spend a tremendous amount of time, particularly on vision and mission and grand strategy, because defining that well is how you then have discipline in your brand as you go up and down your market segments. So if you were advising somebody who was starting a nonprofit, you'd say spend what percentage of your time developing that? Like 100% of your time figuring out the grand vision first and then go sell it to donors or... What's the order? Absolutely. So if you're going to start, and this concept, by the way, does apply to launching a project. Let's say you're going to launch a project that is specifically focused on education reform, or you're going to launch a different project that is specifically focused in a given state on eliminating the income tax, or you're going to start a new organization. Whichever it is, this concept I'm about to talk about applies to all of them. If you don't spend 100% of your time on vision, mission, uh, what I call principles and values and your grand strategy in the beginning, what will happen is as you unfold your implementation over time, you will be knocked around like in a pinball machine and you won't know how to get back to center. But if you spend the right amount of time on vision, mission, principles, values, and grand strategy in the beginning, then when you have the buffeting that happens during any launch of any, uh, any uh, initiative or uh, enterprise, you will always know where your North Star is and how to get back to it. So, for example, one of our uh, uh, guiding principles is we don't do uh, pay for play. So, if a donor came to us and said, I'll give you a million dollars, but I want you to take on this project, we don't do that. We only would take that million dollars if it fits within our vision, mission, and grand strategy. So, we don't do immigration. We don't do Second Amendment. We don't get into social issues. People have come to me over the years and offered tremendous amounts of money to do that. We would never do that at the Illinois Policy Institute because it would be a violation of that original charter, if you will. So in the beginning, you should spend 100% of your time on that planning process. And you don't have to have it perfectly refined, but you have to have it largely developed. Right. And you could see how it'd be really easy, you know, especially starting out where someone asks you to, you know, take on a second amendment issue, for example. And you're like, if you didn't have that guiding star, you know, with money right there on the table, it's hard to turn that down. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our upcoming seven-figure fundraising workshop this February 26th through 28th in Alexandria, Virginia. We'll be teaching the seven-figure fundraising system and how to grow your existing major donors and find new ones. This is an intimate workshop where we limit it just to 24 people so you can have one-on-one -on -one coaching so you can leave feeling confident, knowing exactly what to say at your next donor meeting. Here's what some of our past attendees have said. Best thing I've ever done. I am so excited to have learned even more than I thought I could ever know. I've been reminded just how much I've forgotten about fundraising, about fundamental habits, developing consistency, thinking of new ways to attack the same problem. It's all covered in the Seven Figure Fundraising Workshops. I recommend them highly. The coaching has been phenomenal, unlike anything I've been a part of in, in a dozen years of fundraising. This workshop is crucial if you really want to grow your nonprofit, and it's worth 
the time, the energy, and the money because you're making a true investment into your nonprofit organization and most importantly into you, the person who's executing it. This is going to make my life a lot easier because now I have the tools necessary to be more successful. To learn more, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com where you can sign up for the workshop or schedule a call with me to answer any questions you have about the workshop. I hope you'll join us in February. Now, back to the interview. Talk to me a little bit about how once you've had that guiding star and that grand strategy, do you go then and pitch it to donors and see if they're going to buy it? Or what's the next step? So I think you should immediately start selling it while you're signing. These things are not mutually exclusive. So you can concurrently go and start talking to donors while you're starting to implement, whether it's you as a single person uh, implementing, which is what was the case in my situation. Uh, and you do both at the same time. You start thinking about, okay, what are the, so now I've developed my uh, vision and mission. I've got my grand strategy that's going to govern how I go about doing this. So what are the goals that flow from that? How do, and those are sort of qualitative in nature. What are the objectives? So of course, in the beginning, one of your goals is going to be raise money. And uh, another goal outside of fundraising would be uh, do the work that helps bring my mission to life, whatever that may be. So let's say you're an education reform group. And so you want to start doing some policy work or some advocacy work in the area of uh, um, school choice or the performance of public schools or whatever it might be. So you would simultaneously start developing your list of potential donors. And as you well know, there's a million ways to do that. And think about what your pitch is. You should write out your pitch, all the things you talk about all the time, and develop what you think your presentation would be when you get the meeting and start trying to get meetings. And you should practice, 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 especially in the beginning before it's really part of your persona and ingrained in you. And uh, But anyway, the point is you should start right away. Uh, and one of the, I think, the hardest things for most people who are new to this is fear gets in the way. I'm so terrified that I'm going to call this person up and I'm going to ask them to meet with me and they're going to say no. Or they say yes, and I go and talk to them, and then I'm going to say, will you give me $50,000? And oh my God, they're going to say, are you insane? Are you crazy? Well, of course, that is all false fear. You have to let that fear, fear is normal. You have to accept that fear is normal. You have to let it pass through you and go out the other side. And it's like a jet engine. When that fear passes through you, it should thrust you forward to go actually take the, make the phone call, send the email, show up for the meeting, and make the presentation. Right. That's such a great analogy. The, uh, let it just pass through you. I think that's what stops a lot of people from either not asking large enough or just being afraid to make those initial calls. How has your fundraising strategy evolved over the last 12 years running Illinois policy? Like, did you have this all defined when you started or is this kind of the final product of the evolution? Uh, it's a little bit of both. So I definitely had the virtuous circle of impact in my mind when I started and thought about it that way in the very beginning uh, and talked about it that way from the very beginning. Um, but the uh, uh, I would say that the biggest, um, I, I'd say from the very beginning, I've always focused on selling vision and mission. One of the things I learned in the call center business and to some degree in the retail sporting goods business was that if you didn't have what in marketing we call a unique selling proposition, it was very hard to get through the noise of the marketplace. You have to remember that every donor that you're hopefully going to be talking to that has high affinity for what you're doing and has high capacity to give, that they are inundated daily with people who think they should be giving to them. And now here you come along and you're trying to break into that. So 
So the number one lesson that I think that we don't spend enough time on in teaching uh, how to be a good fundraiser is the first step is how do you develop rapport? And what is rapport development? What is the purpose of rapport development in the beginning of the conversation? And this applies to every stage of the conversation. This applies to the subject line in the email. This applies to the first thing out of your mouth when you make a phone call, if you get them on the phone. It applies to the voicemail you leave. It applies to what you do when you sit down with them. It applies to all the written material that you put in front of them. It's all about rapport. And the purpose of rapport development is to break down the barriers that each of us erects in our life to stop the onslaught of information flow into our brains that is so distracting and overwhelming. In order to get to the presentation, to make the ask, you have to break through that. And rapport development skills are one of the most important ways to do that. And I learned that early on uh, in the uh, call center business and then flowing into the rest of my uh, business life. And so we spent a lot of time teaching that, and it applies to every aspect of life. There's specific techniques that apply to each unique situation. But the bottom line is you want to be heard and and have your message absorbed. And you can only do that by figuring out how to break in with rapport. And then the second part of all this that I think is universal that I took with me from the very beginning is that people don't want to invest in just another run-of-the-mill thing. Uh, People want to invest in something they think is unique and going to be a difference maker. So going back to that unique selling proposition, once you define what that is, that not only helps you figure out how to break in with good rapport skills, it also helps you how to position your, your pitch or your presentation in a way that makes it stand out apart from everybody else. So I'll give you an example. When I first started, I developed this concept I call the political vice that you've heard me talk about before. And we don't have to go into the details of what the political vice is, but the purpose of the political vice is to explain how politics actually works in a way that donors have never heard before. And so the way I would set it up, my rapport question was, do you ever wonder why you keep giving money to conservatives and they immediately get in office and move left? Meanwhile, liberals get in office and just move further left. Do you ever wonder why nobody moves to the right? And of course, every donor is frustrated by this and says, yes, that really ticks me off. And I say, well, it's because of the political vice. And I'd like to come and explain to you what I'm doing to fix that. Okay, that is a great rapport development and a great tease to get a meeting. And obviously, you can see how that would flow into a meeting. You have to come up with something like that. And that's that should flow out of the work you previously did in developing your vision and mission and your grand strategy. This kind of part of the presentation should reveal itself or you've not done a very good job on vision, mission, and grand strategy. Right. Can you give us an example of how you train your staff now on that rapport development and like creating those information gaps like you just mentioned? Uh, We talk a lot about, uh, of course, we talk about, you know, the relationship development, the cultivation process, moves management, and how you continually talk to donors. And, but we always start with a premise I know is near and dear to you, but we spend a lot of time on this, is that it always has to be authentic. The moment that you're going through a formulaic process with them uh, and you lose your authenticity because you're just going through a formulaic process is the moment you become not only, in my view, an unethical fundraiser, but you'll become a less effective fundraiser. The relationships really have to matter to you. You really have to care about who the person is and what their motivations are. And you have to think about what your um, organization is offering as a menu of offerings, just like when you go into a fine Chinese restaurant. Not everybody likes everything on the menu, but everybody that's there likes Chinese. And your job is to figure out which part of the menu each of your individual donors like. And then you, part of what you have to do is figure out how can I make what we're doing in that area timely and topical. That is the key idea, timely and topical. What are the gaps 
in their news feed that they're not going to get elsewhere that you fill with something unique that is going on. So, for example, uh, as has been well reported now, I, along with a hedge fund out of New York, sued the state of Illinois for issuing unconstitutional uh, long-term obligation bonds. And this has been a big story here. So that is timely and topical to what we do, which is we're trying to get pension reform. So I have crafted individualized emails to all of our top donors explaining why I, this is an initiative by me personally because the Institute, for a variety of reasons, legally cannot be involved in it. So, um, but I'm explaining to all of our donors why I'm doing this and how it affects the Institute's agenda going forward. And that's what you have to try to do all of the time in terms of connecting with donors in that unique way. It's come up with things that are timely and topical. If you don't come up with things that are timely and topical, uh, they're, got, they're not going to read your emails. And one of the ways you can tell if you're doing a good job uh, is um, to see if they open your emails and do they forward your emails. To, so, for example, if you send an email out to Bob Smith, first of all, number one, did he open it? And was it open more than once? Because it was open 20 or 30 or 40 times. That means that he forwarded your email on to other people. That's a good sign that what you're saying is resonating. If you're looking at different emails and nobody opened it, you have to rethink, okay, why did that not, why did that not connect with that person? Uh, I had a, a, a friend, a well-known name in the conservative movement, libertarian movement, who has asked me for some help in fundraising and just came back to me and said that they were sending out email. I said, well, what are the open rates on your emails that you're sending out? He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, why don't you know? Well, because we're just sending them from our regular email program. I said, well, I told you, you have to do it through MailChimp or it's all useless because you can't measure anything. Right. There's all sorts of software like Yesware and these other tools that allow you right from your inbox to track if people are opening it. Do you do a different approach when it's a new donor versus like a renewing donor on communicating? Like, do you still track that um, when you're reaching out to prospects? Yes, always. Uh, all of that is measured all the time and the subject matter is different. Uh, you know, in email in particular, Subject lines are the driver of open rates. And so we do an A-B test on every single email that goes out of here to any sizable list to determine which one has the higher and more effective open rate and to make sure it meets our threshold that we're looking for. And have you noticed a difference in the that whole concept of the timely and topical? Like what donors are responding to now versus, say, five, eight years ago? Have you noticed any shifts in that? Oh, yeah, it's very different now because we've had a political change here. We have a, a Democrat supermajority control of both chambers. We're back to having a Democrat governor. So everything is completely different than it was when we had Democrat control of the legislature and we had a Republican governor for four years. And then prior to that, it was the, as it is now. So Democrat governor, supermajority, uh, Democrat control of the chambers. So all during these cycles, uh, that alone, political control changes what donors are interested in. Uh, secondly, the policies uh, that are timely and topical have changed over time, although the overarching policies that uh, have become transcendent, of course, are the ones that are uh, causing all of our difficulties, which is pension reform, uh, um, benefits for public sector workers, and the resulting impact on property taxes and taxes in general. That dominates everything, even more so than it probably did six, seven, eight years ago. Wow. And also probably the ability to get some of this stuff done, like you have to build different coalitions now than you would have even, you know, two or three years ago. Well, yeah, that's a really interesting point. So our team uh, went through a process of analyzing 10 years of legislative history to figure out what could we do differently and how could we innovate relative to this new world we're in with the, the supermajorities and the Democrat governor with the total political control. And through that analysis, uh, I won't go into all the details because we're not quite ready to talk about it in 
public yet, but through that analysis, we discovered that the strategy we were using legislatively was flawed, and we came up with a new model and a new theory as to how to go forward, and the initial results of that in this last legislative session are very, very promising on how a uh, pro-liberty organization can do well even in a blue state. Well, that brings up an interesting question. So I've always been really impressed with your team, like how talented they are. And like when we've done training with them and talked with them, they're just very talented people. But you also have this really interesting entrepreneurial spirit, like you just talked about changing your whole legislative strategy. How do you a find people who are very talented and have that spirit? But how do you keep that alive as you've grown to now you're at 46 people, 46 employees? How do you keep that entrepreneurial spirit alive? So I think the most important thing is to think long and hard in advance what kind of people you want. And I spent uh, 11 years in the call center business. And the key to the call center business was how well you could recruit, uh, hire, and train, and then retain salespeople in what is a very high turnover world. So the more you could be successful at that formula of hiring the right people who became productive uh, and you retained them, the more successful you would be in running call centers. So I spent a tremendous amount of my time early in my career thinking about that. And early on, I developed uh, four uh, a criteria of four personality traits that I thought were universally important to in, ter in terms of hiring. And I've written a document on this. People can send me an email and I'll be happy to share it. But it's, uh, it's basically, uh, I'll run through these very quickly. But the first personality trait we look for is somebody who is driven, number one, first and foremost, by personal pride. So people are motivated by different things, uh, money, competition, recognition, status, title, etc. Those things are all great, and there's nothing wrong with any of them. But if they're the primary motivator, things begin to go awry. Whereas somebody who's motivated by their own sense of uh, pride in their work, they always set their standard higher than the organizational standard because they just take pride in what they do. That person is always going to be a better colleague. And the reason is, is that the first things I mentioned, uh, money, competition, et cetera, those are all controlled by others. The individual does not control it. The only thing the individual uh, controls 100% is their own sense of pride in their work. So that is a, a key driver. So the classic example of this is the guy who does great in his contract year, signs his contract, and his production falls off later. He has no personal pride. It was all about the money for him. Versus Michael Jordan, who made a, uh, was a, a Hall of Famer every year, an amazing competitor, even when he was only making $3 million a year. And then when he started finally cashing in and he made $30 million a year, you saw no difference in his performance. You know, that's, of course, what you're looking for. Second personality trait is people who are self-accountable. When something goes amiss and you say, hey, well, how come we didn't hit the goal? They go, well, I thought it was going to be X, Y, and Z, and I miscalculated. I made a mistake here. I made a mistake there, and I should have done this, and this is what I've learned, and here's how I'd go at it next time. Okay, that person is amazing. The other person, what I call a shedder, they shed responsibilities. Ask them the same question. They say, well, I didn't have enough resources. The other side did this thing, and so we didn't know that was going to happen, and you know, my team wasn't very good. All right. Those people, you try to fire as quickly as you can because they're just terrible. They're cancers. The third thing is people who are curious. Uh, curious people never accept this. And this goes to the core of part of your question. Curious people never accept the status quo. They never accept the routine. They never accept it's always been done this way. Curious people are always learning, thinking about the future. How could it be different? Imagining it different and thus coming up with ways to innovate and change. And plus, curious people, frankly, are just more fun to be around. They're just fun people and they're not boring. And I hate working with boring people. Um, so, and then the last one is people who are tenacious. I mean, we are in Illinois. 
Uh, you have to be tenacious. You know, one of my favorite songs to illustrate this is the Kenny Rogers song. You got to know when to uh, hold them and when to fold them. You should actually read the lyrics on it. It's kind of interesting. And uh, tenacious people don't give up too quickly. And one of the things I think is interesting, this is true of parenting and, and, and the environment we live in today, is the people being brought up today, are they seem to think that everything is going to be a straight line of success. That is just dreamland. You know, life is hard. Uh, the other side gets to play the game and compete with you, and you have to be tenacious to forge ahead. So we look for those personality traits. And then culturally, we really have a culture of what we call drive your own agenda. And this is a phrase that we use around here a lot, that if you want to be successful, you have to drive your own agenda. If you're waiting for your supervisor to drive your agenda, you are going to fail here. If you are pushing your supervisor that you have ideas and you want to push, you're going to be very successful here. It's not that you, everything that you say you want to do gets green-lighted, but if you're pushing your agenda, you're generally going to be very, very successful. And so there's an entrepreneurial spirit that flows. I had dinner with a friend last night, and they were telling me that their supervisor told them that this, they told them this critically, that one of your problems is you have too much of a bias for action. That blew me away. Like, really? That's a, that's, that's a negative? Boy, I'm dreaming of having people like that. That's great. And I've never heard of anyone uh, being critical of a bias towards action before. That's funny. So how do you screen for this? Like, you keep saying, mentioning screening for, you know, driven by personal pride, people who are self-accountable, people who are curious and tenacious. How do you screen for that? Uh, you have to be patient and you have to be thorough and you have to ask the right questions. So I'll go through a couple very quickly. So for personal pride, I'll just simply ask, Trevor, tell me when you get up in the morning, what makes you tick? What makes you want to go to work? Tell me about something that went really well and how you were recognized for it. Trevor, tell me about something that you did that nobody noticed. How did that make you feel? And those kind of questions draw out what motivates people. So the person that when you say that, oh, my boss, he always tells me I'm doing a great job. And I'm really like, oh, that's interesting. What else makes you want to get up? No, well, I, you know, I got a new title and that made me very excited. Those are okay answers. But if somewhere in the conversation, they don't, when I say something, well, tell me about something you did that you thought was amazing that nobody noticed. Oh, I didn't care that nobody noticed. I felt so good about that. I, I couldn't wait to go back and build on that and do it again. It doesn't matter that anybody noticed because I, I, I knew it was the right thing to do. That's the kind of answer you're looking for when it comes to personal pride. In terms of self-accountability, one of the key questions I ask uh, that almost always works is, tell me about something you did that was an utter failure. Just tell me what happened. And everybody, it's really interesting to watch people sort of struggle and decide which version of utter failure they're going to tell you and how they're going to couch it. And people will lay it out on you, uh, pretty much as the, with the examples I said earlier. They'll either say, this terrible thing happened and it was all everybody else's fault, or this terrible thing happened because I misjudged this or I did this wrong and I didn't learn from this. And, you know, I would say that uh, in that question, the, I get the correct answer only about half the time. A lot of people are shutters and then they don't go much farther in the interview process. Curiosity, one of my questions is, uh, all right, you're hired, you show up here on your first day, and we're all on an outing across the river, and all the bridges are out, and all the cell phones are out. You can't reach or talk to any of us. What are you going to do on your first day here in the office? You have carte blanche to look around, open any desk you want, do whatever you want. What are you going to do? Uh, I'll ask them that. I'll ask them, um, tell me about something you've learned lately that you didn't know before that's added value to your life. And then in terms of tenaciousness, I'll ask questions about, tell me about something that's been really hard for you. Tell me about something that you really worked hard at and then gave up on. And then when they tell the story about how they gave up on it, I'll probe on that to try to see whether I thought it was premature or whether it was a good decision. There's a great book that uh, Ryan Green, my colleague uh, that runs our uh, Iron Light Marketing Agency, shared with me by Seth Godin called The Dip. 
And I would recommend mm-hmm. it's a short, easy read and a fun read, but it really gets to the point of tenaciousness. Are you in a dip that you just have to get over the rise and onto the other side? Or are you in a cul-de-sac that you should quit? The art of life is knowing which is which. Mm-hmm. That's such a great point. So what are some of the responses you get to, like, for example, the question and the curiosity question with someone at their office and no one's around? What kind of responses do you get that signify a good employee or someone with lots of potential? Well, the first the kind of responses you get, are, well, I would look around and I'd look in the bookshelves to see what kind of reports have been issued. And I'd start reading up on all the policy I could find that is current. So that whenever everybody came back from being across the river, I would be up to date on the policy. Uh, Do I have internet access? Okay, yeah, you have internet access or you don't have internet access. I play around with that. And then I just kind of, all I'm looking for is to see how their thought process works, is how they're going to learn about the job, even there's nobody there to train them. And so what I'm looking for is that they're going to dig, they're going to search, they're going to find, they're going to be bold, they're going to go open drawers, they're going to turn on people's computers, and they're going to try to find information any way they possibly can. And that's the kind of answers I generally get on that question. Although sometimes people will say, well, I don't know what I would do. You know, that person's not going to be a very good employee. Right. Yeah, they're probably not a good fit, which is funny because a lot of organizations, they would be scared of people who would say, oh, yeah, I'd go turn on computers or I'd, you know, rummage through someone's desk to find something to do. But that's kind of the attitude that you want to keep that entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Well, and it's not accidental. When I was in a management training program in the call center business, I asked my boss, I said, I want to come in on the weekend and I just want to dig into all the clerical stuff. He said, sure, have at it. So I came in on when I was off work. By the way, this is when I was going to school full time and I was working 55 hours a week for this company. So it was not a significant commitment of time. But I went for several weekends in a row. I went in on the weekend and I made friends with the clerical supervisor and I became an expert at how all the back office stuff worked. And because I knew how all the back office stuff worked, I moved way ahead of all my competitors to get the next branch assignment. And that's a really good example of pushing your own agenda. And I learned that early on. Right. And putting in the hours, you know, that's probably pretty boring topics to be reading through, but putting in the hours to get the details right. These were green ledger sheets. There's nothing more exciting than a green ledger sheet that's about four feet across that folds up into different things with 300 names on it. So one of the interesting things when I was prepping for this interview is I went through and watched a lot of your videos that you have on your YouTube page for Illinois policy. And I noticed this pretty dramatic shift in how you communicate from going back, like I think there's an interview 10 years ago where you're talking about a balanced budget and you spend a lot of time discussing specific facts and figures. And then I think it was about a year ago, you have a video where you're talking again about contacting the governor or legislators about that same balanced budget uh, idea, but there's almost no numbers and you're talking about it in a very simple, clear way um, with just a very clear call to action on what you wanted them to do. And I was just struck by the difference between the two. Can you talk to me about how your communication style has evolved and how you came to this different approach? So my first two strategic imperatives, I mentioned earlier, vision, mission, and grand strategy. My first two grand strategic imperatives were, number one, we're going to play by the rules of the political vice. And number two, we're going to be marketing-centric in all that we do. And one of the concepts of being marketing-centric is that we want to sell in the language the target audience consumes. And so that was uh, part of the plan from the very beginning. But what happened in the very beginning was I was brand new to the public policy arena, the advocacy arena. I'd never done media before. And so I sort of went to the default that this world tends to go to, which is when I first started doing media and learning about it, 
I went to the numbers and sort of the data points because we're a policy organization. And it took me a long time to understand how to translate and convert policy stories into people stories. And one of the insights I had fairly early on was that the way to, the way you do that is you have to tell the story about policy at the point it intersects an individual's life. And when you think about a policy that way, what it forces you to do is think about an actual person living their life on a daily basis. And let me give you an illustration. So uh, yesterday, our gas tax doubled. We, know we had the fourth highest gas taxes in the country, and we're probably third now or whatever we are. So we have very high gas taxes, very disappointing. And there's a whole discussion here about the gas taxes, and now's a good time to do it because oil is low, and you know, all the advocates were talking about all these number-driven things. And I told the story about why it's immoral to raise the gas taxes uh, now because of a woman I saw at a gas station some months ago when I was coming out of Springfield. I stop on the left side of the pumps. She pulls up on the right side of the pumps, and her son gets out of the car, who's maybe 20-ish years old, an adult son, but young, and he starts walking into the a building to go prepay. I, of course, have put my credit card in and I'm going to fill up like I do every time. And I do it without much of a thought because I live this fortunate life I do and I can fill up my gas tank every time. But he gets about halfway to the building, turns around and walks back to his mom and said, mom, how much? And she paused for two or three seconds and said, let's do $20. And then he went back in. That's the woman who's going to be crushed right now because when she goes to buy her gas next time, she might still put in $20, but she's only going to get about 80% of the of fuel to go truck drive to her one or two jobs, to take the kids to school and all the other things that she does. That's who's being harmed by this gas tax. And that's the person who should be at the center of our stories. And that's what we try to do as an organization. And Ryan Green and Austin Berg and the entire team uh, at the, on the marketing side, as well as the policy side, have done a great job of converting our policy ideas into human stories. It's such a great example, especially the story. Like, you won't forget that story. You know, I probably can retell it, you know, six months from now, just how you told it, because it's such an impactful story and brings back, like, all the times, like, when personally you've, you've struggled yourself and really had a hard time and trying to make that work. One of the reasons I love that story is because uh, when I was in my 30s, I had this little riff I used to do. I knew I was a grown-up when... And then I would fill in the blank because by the time you're in your 30s, you're sort of a grown up. And one of my riffs was I knew I was a grown up when I could fill up my gas tank every time because I wasn't putting in five or 10 or 12 dollars because I was always broke. My other ones, by the way, were I knew I was a grown up when my belt started holding in my stomach instead of holding up my pants. <laughs> Still true today. And there's a lots of good ones that you can have fun with yourself. But that's that's where that original idea came from. And then as I watched, you know, watch people live their lives and you realize you know, these are real things to people. You know, if she starts to pay 40, 50 bucks more per month uh, for her gas, for her car, what is she taking off the family budget? Is it the tutor for her kid who can't read? Is it the tutor for the kid who's trying to learn math? Or was it the piano lessons? You know, this affects people in very real ways that the political class has completely lost touch with. Right. For them, they have a lot of margin in their finances and their life, and it's just not going to affect them that same way. Yep. So just to, as we're wrapping up the interview, if you could get nonprofit leaders to take one action after listening to this interview, what would it be and why? Uh, the one action I would suggest that people, actually, I, I'm going to give a friendly amendment to your question. I'm going to say there's one attitude they should change and one action they should take. The attitude they should change is 
overcome your fear. There's nothing more important for somebody running a nonprofit than to stop letting fear getting in the be in the way of you and boldness. Go for it. Be fearless. If you go forward and it doesn't work out, there is no humiliation in that. There is no loss of pride. There, you are to be admired for having tried. So that'd be number one. And then in terms of the one action, I would sit down and think in three or four years, if everything I dream of comes true, what would it be? And I would write that down on a piece of paper. And then I'd immediately go ask for a meeting with my biggest donor. And I'd say, this is what I want to make happen. Will you help me with a gift? And then ask for the biggest donation you've ever asked for them, maybe two or three times what they've given me. Wow. That's some great advice. So how can people find out more about Illinois policy and what you guys do? Uh, if you want to find out more about Illinois policy, just go to IllinoisPolicy.org and you can see our website there and all the fun stuff. Uh, you can see some of the other, as you know, Trevor, I have some other organizations I'm involved with. I recommend everybody go and Google the Velvet Hamster, which is one of our satirical sites that a sister organization is developing, but it's done by the uh, marketing team here at Illinois Policy. That would be kind of fun. And then if you want to watch how the media uh, attacks uh, nonprofit leaders and why you have to have a thick skin to do it, just Google me and you'll find all kinds of interesting things out there. And I recommend you do that because, uh, first of all, it's entertaining. But secondly, uh, if you're going to make a difference in the world and everybody listening should want to make a difference and live a life of consequence, you have to be willing to put yourself out there and do that thing I talked about earlier, which is be fearless. Right. And I think everyone who describes you would describe you that way, John. So it's been a real privilege having you on this, uh, on the podcast. And I just want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, great to be with you. And by the way, I'm riddled with fear every day. I just keep letting it pass through me like a jet engine. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Seven Figure Fundraising and our training, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. Finally, if there's one person you know would benefit from hearing this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. Thanks. Thanks.